Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed podcast. It frankly is a topic that I'm not very enthused talking about, but we have to, we need to. It's one you would like to avoid, I suspect. It's one I sure, if I could, I, I, would, I would avoid. It intrigues me that in the book of Genesis, when God established an order of things, he started with establishing, first of all, male and female. So he, he established gender specificity first. The second thing he established is the issue of marriage. One man, one woman becoming one with each other. The third thing he established, we're up to John, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, procreation. And, and Adam and Eve knew each other. And the result was that intimacy produced a child. So that's the order of things. And so what did the enemy do? The enemy, taking a cue from Mahatma Gandhi, who says, take the least contested ground first, worked in reverse order. And first of all, went after procreation through abortion, made it legal in the country in 1973, Roe v. Wade. And then having done that by 2015, Obergefell versus Hodges, the Supreme Court case, uh, forced a redefinition of marriage, defying 5,000 years of heritage, uh, revive, re, uh, coming against the orthodox biblical historic definition of marriage at that point. And then by 2016, 2016 is the place I mark it because that's when it became a national issue with President Obama at that time and the North Carolina bathroom bill and Obamacare itself. Both made the issue of male versus female, non-binary now, a new word we all learned, and phrases like cisgender and about 56 other phrases that now get thrown around in this whole area. It's complex, it's difficult, it's, it's uh, not easy for most of us as we enter into discussions with people on this. So I have invited tonight two people. The first one is Janet Dean. She is a professor at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. In a few weeks, a couple months, she'll be moving across the street, across Lexington Avenue, and become a, a professor at Asbury Theological Seminary. I happen to be a graduate of that institution, a town and a city and an institution I love deeply. I'm gonna ask her to speak on this. I ask her to give her credentials. Among her credentials, the fact she's an ordained Nazarene pastor, but I'll ask her to give her or, or her academic credentials on this, this subject and then talk to us. Uh, what, what can we learn about this topic? What's the scriptures have to say? How do we deal with friends and neighbors or others who uh, seem to be struggling with this, and how do we help them in the name of Jesus? And after that, I'll be introducing Joe and Franco, an attorney, to take us even further on this topic. But Janet, we really welcome you. Thank you so much for being on this. I turn it to you right now. Welcome to the World Prayer Network. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, um, Jim. You're right. This is a topic that is uh, difficult for us, particularly in the church. So I have been working in the area of sexual identity and then gender identity for probably 16, 17 years. And I began with sexual identity and faith looking at uh, sexual, and I, we use the term minority for a reason, I'll explain that in a second, sexual minority students and how they, how they figured out how to hold faith and sexuality together. So that's where we started. And we've recently moved more to gender identity with just the changing times. Um, I am an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene, and I have a Master of Divinity degree in my background. I am also a licensed clinical psychologist in the state of Kentucky. And my training is a master's in counseling, a master's in clinical psychology, 
and then uh, the PhD all from the Ohio State University. And so, um, and so I've been working in the field. I have a private practice in addition to my, um, my teaching and then our research. And a couple of years ago, we wrote a book on um, listening to sexual minorities on Christian college campuses. So I use that term minority as a way to give space to people who find themselves same-sex attracted, who do not wanna identify as LGBTQ. And so I'm really hesitant to use the LGBTQ label for people because that's putting them in a place that not everybody wants to be. And so I know that minority feels like it has political connotations, but it's hard to talk about a term that encompasses enough to get folks who don't wanna take on that identity. And so I will do the same with uh, gender diverse students. That tends to be the way we talk about them. Um, as I talk today, I'm speaking primarily as an ordained elder. Uh, if I'm speaking to a group for in psychology, I talk a little bit differently. I have to use other language to, and I have to, to uh, approach issues in a different way in order to be heard. So know that I'm wearing my clergy hat today, primarily. Um, so I don't know if you all are aware, but in February of this year, the Gallup um, organization released a poll that showed that 7.1% of US adults now self-identify as LGBTQ. That number has doubled since 2012. So in 10 years, it's doubled. Um, it's even an increase since the year 2021. So within the past year, it's gone from 5.6% to 7.1%. Um, when we begin to look at this, what we find is that most of the growth is with our younger folks, um, primarily our Gen Z adults. Among them, 21% identify as LGBTQ. That's one out of five. I work primarily with college students right now. I'm on a, a pretty conservative Christian college campus. Our rates are probably on our campus 15 to 17%. Uh, I was in a local high school doing a presentation last week. It was probably 30% there. And so know that there's that difference. Um, we are heading very quickly to there being um, at more than 10% of adults in the United States identifying as LGBTQ. And so I say that, but at the same time, there's only about 86% who are identifying as straight or cisgender. So we're, there's a handful, you know, four or 5% of people who are afraid to identify or who are not saying anything um, with that. Of, of the people who identify um, as experiencing some same-sex attraction, the majority of them are identifying as bisexual. Um, and the majority of those who identify as bisexual are actually in opposite sex relationships. And so even though they're taking on that identity, that's not how they're living. So we have that piece. We also have this piece that right now it's about 0.7% of adults are saying that they're transsexual or transgender or gender non-binary or the word that they're using today is queer, which was a bad word when I was growing up and it, it's not a bad word anymore. 
Um, that number varies from the organization. So if you, you look at some of the, the early studies, they were saying it was 0.3% um, to the Williams Institute at UCLA. They're saying it's between 0.6 and 0.8%. Some of the more current studies in this Gallup poll said that it's 1.8% of Gen Z students. So I, I say all of this because I want you all to be aware this is a a force that's coming at us. And as our Gen Zers grow up, it's only going to become a, a more difficult thing for us to deal with. Um, our Gen Zers are starting to enter into adulthood and they're bringing this with them into the church and into the marketplace and everywhere else. It is not going away, not anytime soon. So I wanted to, um, with that, talk about three things tonight. Um, I think one, we need to have confidence in what we believe. And so one of the things that I am finding that happens most often is Christians have a loved one who comes out um, as either same-sex attracted or as gender non-binary. And because they love this person, right, they their beliefs change. And I believe that it's completely possible to love somebody fully and completely and yet hold orthodox beliefs around sexuality and gender. And in fact, I think that's what real love is. And, um, but that's not what I see in many of the Christians that I work with. So I want to talk about, we need to have confidence in what we believe too. I do think we need to understand people's experience and what they're going through and what this is like for them so that we can um, engage the conversation. And then three, I wanna talk very quickly about some things we might do as the church um, in, in reaching people and caring for people. So number one, what do we believe? Um, I believe very much that our understanding of sexuality and gender are core doctrinal issues. Uh, one of the things I'm seeing in the United Methodist Church is that they're saying this is, this is a non-essential. I disagree with that strongly. This is an essential. This speaks to creation. It speaks to the very image of God in us, and it speaks to covenant. And those are key doctrinal issues that we have to um, deal with. And so, Jim, you mentioned, you know, God created male and female in Genesis 1. I think in that chapter, it's fascinating that God brings order to the chaos by setting up boundaries around opposites. It's not just male and female, it's heavens and earth and light and dark and morning and evening and sea and sky and water and dry land and sun and moon and birds in the air and animals on the ground and male and female, right? So there's something about that binary that matters in the created order beyond human beings, right? And then it's male and female together that were created in the image of God. And so anything, I would argue, anything that mars the, our sense of being male and female is marring our understanding of the image of God, right? With that, I believe that together, right, male and female together are the image of God. And so marriage then becomes extremely important, not only in that together we represent the image of God, 
but also because marriage itself, I strongly believe, is the sign that God uses to represent our relationship with him. Scripture opens with a marriage between a man and a woman. Scripture closes with a marriage, Christ and his church. The very center of scripture is the Song of Songs, and it's this beautiful love story of between a man and a woman, but also it's an allegory between our relationship with God. And then throughout scripture is this metaphor of God is the faithful husband, right? And so if we lose marriage, we lose our primary sign for how God relates to us. It's covenant. It's a covenantal relationship. And so with that, you know, we're seeing the attack on marriage and uh, it, you know, it looks like it's being successful. And so I think once we begin to tear apart the relationship, then we can begin to tear apart the very image of God in people. So when Paul says, you know, but um, this is a a sin against your own body, I think that sexual sins are problematic because they are sins against the very image of God and the very sign that he's given us of how he relates to us. So I see this as core. This is where I start. Uh, Everything that I do is grounded in this understanding of gender and sexuality. Um, I also believe um, that to some, well, we can skip over that because I don't have a lot of time. I could go on and on about this at another time. Take Um, take your time. Take your time. This is important. (laughs) With this, I I do want to say this. Um, When I hear people who are more gay affirming, I do hear this language in them. I hear Uh, they will talk about Genesis one and two, and then they move to the book of revelation, but they forget that Genesis three happened. Right. And there was fall and we do have a problem of original sin and we all have distortions. We are all less than what God created us to be because of that sin condition. And, and so how can I say this? Our same-sex attraction, right, is part of the original sin brokenness that we have. I, I don't want to say, though, that people are willfully engaging in that because they're not always. Most of the time, they're not. They experience this. They haven't chosen that. I don't think that that's willful sin. So I'm not going to treat it as though while you're same-sex attracted, that's willful sin. Now, if you engage in that and you have lust or those sorts of things, then yes, it is. But it is still part of original sin brokenness. And there's a movement in the church right now to say even the attraction is not sin. And I think we really need to draw upon Wesley's understanding of willful sin and infirmities, right? Like we really do have these things about us that are just part of that sin nature. All of us to some degree have distortions in our sexuality and our understanding of the self. That's what original does to us. Um, The other thing that I see, and it's probably a bigger philosophical issue here. I am really, really concerned about the way the LGBTQ movement but also some of the things that are going on with race in our culture. Um, How can you say this? They make less of our humanity than we really are. 
right? They say your sexuality is all that you are, or your gender is all that you are, or your race is all that you are. We have this robust picture of what it means to be human. And it's so much bigger than what any of those things can offer. And I think one of the things that we have as the church to offer people is this is what it means to be fully human, right? What it means to be like Christ who was fully human is to be like him, right? And that's more than our gender. That's more than our sexuality. That's more than the color of our skin or our background. And I think that's something that we can offer offer that is, how can I say this? It gives us identity in a way that is more full and more accurate to our created nature than anything the world could provide. So with that, um, we know that people approach these issues um, and I'm drawing a lot today on my um, work of my colleague, Mark Yarhouse. Um, we've been working together for years and so it's hard to know what's his work and what's my work, but I will tell you most of it's his work. He, um, he's developed these three lens through which we see. And so if you listen to the arguments out in the world, you will hear these perspectives. So most of us who are coming from the church from an, ortho, an Orthodox perspective will use what's called an integrity lens, right? We believe that um, God created us as male and female and that marriage is supposed to be between a man and a woman and that there's something that's correct about that. Um, scientists can sometimes get here just based on our biology um, and not even be religious, but there's something about the integrity of our own biological sex and then how that works together in marriage that is sacred and, and can't be violated. So that's one lens. The second lens is a disability lens. And so this is this idea that there is something wrong, um, that there's some kind of illness or some kind of brokenness, um, that it, 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 they're not going to say that this is a, a, a moral condition, this isn't a moral failing, but it's some kind of brokenness in the way that we experience the world and experience ourselves. That's usually what the disability lens will say. And so what they'll call you to do is they'll say, you know, this is a condition that we need to empathize with. And we need to come alongside and support people. The third lens is a diversity lens that they would argue that there is such great diversity in human experience and the way that we understand ourselves and the way that we relate to one another. All of it is good and that should be celebrated. Okay. Now, what happens very often is we approach these issues out of one lens, someone else will approach it out of another lens and we end up talking past one another, right? And, and so if I'm going to engage in conversation with somebody, it's important that I hear the lens that they're coming from so that I, I know where to meet them to have that conversation because otherwise they're just not gonna hear me. Um, I would also tell you, all, I think that all of these lens have something important to offer right? The integrity lens matters. We, I think that's where we start, but sometimes if we don't consider the other two lens, we can go, we can get so fixated in what's right and what's wrong that we fail to love the person in front of us. The disability lens, this one will get us in trouble sometimes in the world. 
But I do think that we need to think about people who are same-sex attracted, who are called to celibacy. What kind of support do they need to walk that journey? How are we as the church to be their extended family and to come alongside them and help them to be faithful to that call that God has on their life towards singleness? What does that look like, right? How do we support them? With gender incongruence, I actually, my clinical experience tells me that these folks struggle more with psychological problems than other folks do, even the same-sex attracted people. Uh, I just, I hate to use this word, I'm going to use it anyway. It seems like there's more pathology there, which calls for more psychological support, right? And then diversity lens, I am, I am not telling us to celebrate all forms of gender or sexual diversity. I'm not saying that at all. But I do think that there needs to be room for some variance in what it means to be male and female, right? Can we, I always tell people, I am a Christian woman. I don't cook. I don't do anything with music. And I really don't want to be involved in children's mysteries at all, right? It's like three strikes against me. I can't be a Christian female. And yet I am. And is that okay for someone like me to see myself as female when I don't fit the stereotype of what it means to be female? And if we can't expand that a little bit, then people are going to look at these gender roles and say, I just don't fit. Right? So that must mean that something is different about me. And they're going to try to figure out what that means. Okay, so that's what we believe. <laughs> what are people experiencing? And we have spent a lot of time listening to people's stories, um, listening to some of the, the I want to say the discrimination that they feel like they're, they're having. Um, it's been interesting in Christian colleges, so I'll speak some from our research here. Students are not reporting a lot of negative comments from faculty and staff. That's just not where it's happening. It's happening peer to peer. And that's the real problem. They're hearing a lot of the, the negative talk and the jokes and the, the criticisms and just the really ugly things from their peers, not from faculty and staff. But what they're not hearing is faculty and staff creating safe spaces. And so I typically will tell the story when I, I'm talking about ministry approaches. Um, many, many, many years ago, I had a student, one of my classes who was um, same-sex attracted. And she was trying to figure that out. And she came to me and disclosed this to me. And we had some conversations um, was in a relationship with somebody and um, I met her partner and we had, so we had, you know, she began to feel safe with me and we began to talk about, um, you know, where is God in this? How do you see God? How does God see this? And we had those conversations. So that's all happening in the background. And then I'm in a class with her and I'm doing a research presentation for class and I let the students ask questions. And I have this young, this young student in the class and um, he probably politically and theologically was perfectly aligned with me. He asks a question, but the language that he uses was so harsh. 
it, it was painful, right? And it, it failed to show respect and dignity of people who were same-sex attracted. And so I understood his question, but the language was hard. So I called him out on the language. And I said, you know, I hear your question. A better way to ask that would be this. Well, that young lady then after class came up to me in tears and she said, I've never had a Christian stand up for me. Now, I didn't stand up for her sexuality because she knows that I I don't support that kind of relationship, but I stood up for her personhood, right? And when I did that, she felt safe. And because she felt safe, we could enter into conversations about her relationship with God. And, and she could actually then hear me, right? Um, I will tell you that she had an incredible prayer experience encounter with the Lord and um, left that relationship and is headed into ministry and with an opposite sex partner. And so she just had radical transformation in her life. Um, and I don't know that it, was, it wasn't me. It was God working in her life. But to some degree, we have to understand that people feel alienated by the church. They feel judged by the church. They feel less than the church. Are we all doing that? Of course not. Right. And a lot of times we can ask people who in this Christian institution has been mean to you and they can't tell us who in your church has been mean to you. They can't tell us. Right. But they've bought into this narrative that that is true. And that then defines their experience. It must be true because that's the narrative. And so to some degree, we have to act and speak against that narrative for them. Um, there was, and so if I talk a little bit more about uh, gender dysphoria, um, particularly in teens, that's where I'm getting a lot of questions. What do we do with children and what do we do with teenagers? Um, one of the things that we're finding is among children who report kind of gender identity concerns, about 75% of them will, um, I'm gonna say resolve those gender identity issues by late adolescence or adulthood. Um, the language that we use for that is they will desist or it's desistance, right? They, they move away from that gender identity concern. One of my concerns is the movement in my field of psychology to very quickly offering biological interventions for young children who we know that about 75% of them will move out of this over time. We give them space, we walk with them some, we do some discipleship, most of them are going to leave this. But when we introduce a biological intervention, we increase the likelihood that this is where they stay dramatically. So this is very disconcerting to me. Um, it's also disconcerting to me to see how many of my colleagues are not doing good assessment around these issues where they're feeling they, I, I've actually been in trainings and heard people say, well, these, folk, these folks have suffered long enough. If they say this is true about them, we know it's true. So just write the letter so they can get the hormones or they can get the surgery. Um, that is poor clinical, that is malpractice. And I mean, I think there's something that we can do there. We need to speak to that. Um, 
Another thing that's happened, um, Lisa Lippman is a researcher, not a Christian. And she, in 2018, published this article where she, um, she observed that there is a significant increase in gender dysphoria among um, natal females. So people born female, biological sex female, that they hit adolescence and then all of a sudden they claim gender identity concerns with no evidence of that prior to this. Um, market rates, uh, the prevalence rates are just skyrocketing. And um, so she was trying to figure out what in the world is going on. Why are we seeing this in adolescent girls so much more than we're seeing it in anyone else, particularly when, how do we, how can you say this? The patterns that we're seeing are typical for males, but they're not typical for females. And now all of a sudden females are starting to show this. And so she found a couple of things. She found that um, about 40% of these young teens were reporting um, same-sex attraction prior to the gender identity. And, and so the theory is perhaps one way that they're making sense of their attraction is to, to make this assumption that they're the wrong gender. Um, 60, over 60% have some kind of psychological problem or, or neurodevelopmental um, disability. I'm seeing really, really high rates of gender dysphoria among children on the autism spectrum. Um, just incredibly high rates. Um, we also, they found, in, and this is some new research that I've just come in contact with, she, in 2018, she makes this observation that almost 40% of these teens were in friendship groups where more than half of the group also identified as trans or gender non-binary. And recently, I was just from another colleague, a youth ministry um, professor in the Nazarene Church, Brian Hall, he was telling me about um, these peer groups that we're now seeing in young people where you have your group of four or five people and everything you do, you do with the same four or five people and your identity is not in you individually. It tends to be in the group itself. And so if one person in the group identifies as bisexual, then probably everybody in the group will identify as bisexual, even if they're not, right? And in youth ministry, they're starting to talk about if you're going to reach out and you know evangelize one of those students, you actually have to reach out to the whole group, not just one. Right. So that, that's been a change, but you have this kind of pure effect. So this has led to some theories. Well, what's going on with this? Um, I will tell you most of these students, 90% almost of their parents said that prior to the gender identity concern, they had an increase in social media internet use. Um, we also, during COVID, saw an increase in tick disorders um, for students who were on TikTok a lot. So that's been an interesting thing. And so the two kind of precursors that 90% of parents noticed is internet use and peer groups, part of this. So why? So some people are saying, well, it's that, you know, our young people are becoming more aware of who they are. 
and it's self-awareness and we're allowing them to actually express themselves. That's the self-awareness model. Other people are saying, well, no, it's a social contagion model. You know, if my friends are doing this, then that must be true about me and I wanna be like my friends. Um, there's a third model that Mark Yarhouse is mentioned um, from Ian Hacking and it's called the looping effect. And so the looping effect is a really interesting thing where you have experts like myself, we try to understand something that's happening and we try to put a name on it, a label on it. And so we did with gender, gender dysphoria. And so we said, this is what gender dysphoria is. And so we started putting this label on people, but in our society, our younger folks who are deconstructing everything said, well, that's a great label, but that doesn't actually fit my experience. My experience looks like this, right? And so what we're seeing is, if you will say transgender, gender non-binary, agender, um, asexual, right? Um, male presenting, we're starting to see all these new labels for gender and for sexual orientation almost as uh, our young people's way of saying that category that you want to put me in is not me. This is the category I'm actually in. And so as they do this and they give us the feedback, then the scientists go, oh, wait, they're using all these new terms. And so we try to get all these terms laid out. We give the terms back to the kids or to the young people. And they say again, yeah, you missed it. I don't exactly fit in that box. So I must have a new label. And that's why we're getting this explosion of identities right now. And so that's another model that's out there. The looping effect is what that is called. Um, I know that I am just out of, about out of time, you all, but our approach, um, I am going to argue for an approach of holy love. So I am a Wesleyan through and through. Uh, um, Wesleyan holiness. And I believe that the one thing that God does that we struggle with is that for him, holiness and love are two sides of the same coin. Um, Mildred Wincoop, Bangs Wincoop, I always get her name on. She actually wrote that. That's not original to me. Um, and I think along with these issues, um, the metaphor that we've been using is that we're on a, people are on a journey. They're on a highway. And they're on this highway and they're trying to figure out if I am same-sex attracted and a person of faith, what does this mean for me? Or if I don't quite fit into this understanding of male and female and I'm a person of faith, what does this mean for me? And I, as we walk with them, I would argue that we need to stay in this place of holy love where we know what we believe and we hold the holiness into this orthodoxy around gender and sexuality. But we, the scripture that supports that is the same scripture that tells us we're supposed to love people passionately. And I believe that as we walk in this journey where we balance those two things perfectly, we can create a holding environment for that person so that they can figure out what this is going to look like for them, right? And, you know, I would, I would want to see them moving to a place where um, their understanding of sexuality and gender gets submitted to what God wants for them. That's what I want to see. But I also know that it's a journey for most people, that it takes some time. When we're on that, when we're on that road with them, that tension that that creates in us 
because it take it creates a lot of tension is really hard for us to balance. And because we don't like that cognitive dissonance as human beings, we're going to tend to want to resolve it. And so we resolve it by taking an off ramp too early. And some people will take the off ramp into love quote unquote, and they will become gay affirming, trans affirming, that sort of thing. Other people take the off ramp into holiness, right? This is the way that it's supposed to be. I want to argue that we need to stay on the road, right? We need to hold to holiness, but we also need to hold to love, trusting that the Holy Spirit is at work in that person's life and that they're on a journey. And if they continue to pursue God, they will get to a place where both of these become submitted to God, right? I just know that it's not going to happen overnight. And I know that I might only get to walk for them with them for part of the journey. Um, and so that's kind of how I see ministry. And so in that, we've talked about creating intentional communities. How do we intentionally support um, folks? And so we, we will say that it has three characteristics, right? So I want to create a church community that is intentionally safe. And what I mean by that, I don't want people to experience bullying. I don't want people to be treated as less than. Um, I also don't want other folks to be exposed to things that they shouldn't be exposed to. So how do I create a safe space for people? Um, second, I want to be intentionally relational. How do I build interpersonal relationships with people so they feel safe with me so that they will let me see them? Because it's only when they let me see them that I can actually do the work of real discipleship, right? And addressing some of the shame that is there in this. The third piece then is intentionally formational. How do we come alongside people, help them grow in their relationship with God, but part of that being around sexuality and gender, and how does God define that, and how does God help them live that out, right? Um, I think sometimes in the church, when we do discipleship, we, we are slow to talk about gender and sexuality, um, I've been working with a, a new ministry, um, it's called Equip Ministries with Peter Volk out of uh, Tennessee, and um, he will say that the, he, he is calling the church to do five things. He says, one, we need to teach sexual stewardship to, um, for everybody, so it's not just our same-sex attracted people, but it's all Christians. We need to talk about adultery and we need to talk about pornography. We need to talk about it all instead of just pulling one piece out is more significant. All of it goes against God's plan for marriage. Two, we need to um, talk about gender and sexuality in Sunday school and from the pulpit and from other places. And we need to do so in a way that evidences holy love. Three, we need to educate our children before they start to hear from the world what gender and sexuality look like. We need to tell them what this looks like, how God defines it, what God says about it, what they're likely to hear from the world so that then when they hear it, they're ready for it. It's almost like they're inoculated, right? Number four, we need good pastoral care 
for gay and trans people, which we just do not have um, in some of the ways that I'll talk about. And then five, I think we really need to look at what is vocational singleness and what is its role in the church and how does the church support people who are living as singles. I could go on about the narrative. There's so many other things I could say, but that's in a nutshell, I think I'm a little bit over time. There you go. Well, thank you so much, Janet. I, 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 I'm loaded with comments and questions and I will resist both and go right to our next guest. We'll probably ask any questions after uh, Joe's gotten a chance to speak, but thank you so much uh, for that. Thank you for your ministry uh, to persons uh, who struggle in all these arenas. I, I stand with you and, and proud of you. Uh, Joe and Franco, an attorney, you've dealt with this from a completely different standpoint, the legal issues um, and the implications of, of, of Christians having their rights taken away by virtue of the LBGTQ radical agenda. Uh, just Joe, Joe was, or maybe still with, but, with, but he was with the uh, Alliance Defending Freedom as an attorney, quite a few attorneys for, for about a two-year span. I had the privilege of being sort of the radio voice for that group. I have what's called the Garlow Perspective. It's a one-minute commentary on 800 stations or approximately 800 stations for about 17 years. And for two of those years, uh, what I literally gave in those one-minute reports were simply the legal cases all across the nation of Alliance Defending Freedom attorneys defending religious liberty. Overwhelmingly, the Christians being crushed. We talk about safe spaces in this case. It's for believers, the Christians being crushed, uh, brutally persecuted, I would say, was by the legal system uh, and by being fired and everything else because of the LBGT uh, radical agenda. So now we're going to get a kind of different perspective from that uh, understanding. And, and Joe has dealt with the whole issue uh, from a legal standpoint. So, Joe, you know it historically and, and legally. So talk to us, if you would, Joe and Franco. Sure thing. And first, let me say, um, how, Janet, how much I appreciate your comments. I think you did a wonderful job of <clears throat> articulating that difficult line of uh, loving people, accepting them, and yet not reinforcing behavior, which is contrary to God's word, which ultimately is harmful for them. Uh, I was with Alliance Defending Freedom for 18 years, litigated many cases, and um, I'm, I'm currently serving as a pastor of adult education. So I, I kind of see both sides of the fence, pardon me. <clears throat> and um, with ADF, I was part of the team that worked on the uh, case that went to the Supreme Court, which sadly we lost in 2020. It's called Harris Funeral Homes. Whether, um, whether the federal employment laws and using the word sex included gender identity and the Supreme Court in a surprising decision uh, concluded that it did. There are many other cases I could describe. I'm just going to mention two quickly to make these points. One is uh, Dr. Nicholas Merriweather, who was a professor, still is, at Shawnee State University in Ohio. He was going to be disciplined, he's a Christian, was disciplined by the university because students demanded that he call that that they refer that pardon me that he referred to them by their preferred pronouns, and uh, he said, "Look, I, I distilling his his belief. He said I can call you any name you like, but if you're obviously male, 
it violates my beliefs as a Christian to use female pronouns, and so I can't do that. It was a lot of interesting discussion. He won that case, upheld on appeal. The university just finally settled it. When it came out, you could have any kind of pronoun for yourself. You could tell a Jewish professor, my preferred pronoun is my Führer, and on and on. You could imagine the fun with that kind of thing. But the, the case I really want to look at is, um, uh, is Dr. Alan Josephson. Uh, Dr. Josephson's a psychiatrist. And, and by being around these cases, I've been exposed to numerous psychiatrists. I've read a lot. I've seen the data that you were referring to, Janet. And um, you have seen kind of the politicization of the system as well. Dr. Josephs um, built up uh, the University of Louisville's uh, child and adolescent psychiatry program to one of the finest in the nation. 15 years into his tenure there, he was speaking at a Heritage Foundation event, and he commented that we should not rush to give children uh, either surgery or hormones that, that put off the onset of surgery. And uh, he commented, just as you observe, and I think the numbers he used were even higher, he said 80 to 85% of the time, when adolescent, pre-adolescents have gender confusion. It is resolved through puberty. The body tends to align, um, pardon me, the mind tends to align with the biology. And in those few cases where it doesn't happen, you, they might look at other things. And by simply saying we should not rush to do that, uh, he was removed from the Department of Psychiatry. He's in the middle of a lawsuit, so I can't say too much about it. But what he is saying is what mainstream psychiatry and psychology is saying. It's a very good book by uh, Abigail Schreier. And Janet, I'm sure you're familiar with it, Irreversible Damage, the Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. And, and, and Schreier is not a Christian. I believe she's Jewish and kind of secular. She has great academic credentials, a degree in philosophy from Oxford, Yale Law School. And she's written on the contagion phenomenon and the insanity that we are pushing young girls into this kind of confusion. And we're often accelerating the confusion by giving puberty blockers or doing surgery on healthy tissue, producing children who are permanently sterile. And a lot of these things are happening at an institutional level. The, the American Pediatric Association took a position that those things should be done for children pre-puberty. And one brave pediatrician spoke up and he called it a, um, a case of institutional capture. And he said, I'd like that revisited. And I put that for a motion to our members. And over 80% of pediatricians who are members said, yes, we need to revisit that. We don't agree with that. Yet, if you ask the APA for their opinion on it, they would have just casually said, yes, start giving these. These are good. And the kinds of things you hear are the typical kind of statements and they're, they're designed to elicit sympathy. And let me say, sympathy is warranted. These are very often profoundly damaged um, individuals. They are, they're, their suffering is profound. Uh, they're, they're dealing with all kinds of trauma. They often don't know how to, do, how to handle it. What I've discovered from a number of the psychiatrists is that uh, child abuse is normative in these, in these cases of gender confusion. It's not an occasional thing. 
it's normative and part of the pattern. And then what gender identity becomes is something like a dissociative reaction. It's something like multiple personalities. The dissociative personality is, this happened to me because I'm a girl or boy. If I had been a different sex, this person might not have hurt me. And so that dissociation takes place. It's a profound thing. And what's come out now uh, is we're seeing the first instances of transgender regret. Because what I understand from them, and I'm synthesizing the opinion of many experts, so bear with me on this. And I know, uh, Janet, you could say a lot more than I'm saying, and you could say it better than I am. But what they have described, and you kind of, you refer to this, is often these children have multiple, multiple pathologies, and nobody gets to the other pathologies. And gender identity tends to be layered on top of other pathologies. And rather than dealing with the other profound underlying pathologies, there's a rush now to have children undergo these kinds of dramatic life change life-changing events. And then after they get older and they find out that that did not deal with the underlying pathologies, uh, that's when the regret phenomenon kicks in, commonly between seven and 14, 15 years, but now it's too late. And attorneys would say the statute of limitations is passed as well. And yet this insane kind of rush takes place, even though for all of psychiatric history, what you did with a child, what gender confusion was absolutely nothing. Let them go through puberty and see what happens. So even though we all know this and it's being commented on by experts all over, not just Christians, uh, it's interesting. There are feminist groups who are picking up this theme now, traditional kind of 60s radical feminist groups, Jim, you know, our bodies ourselves. They're outraged by the concept that you can identify your gender, compete in women's sports and take all the trophies, take the scholarships meant for women, take the, the, the business programs, incentivizing women-run business, and on and on and on. And what's happening, though, is because this, this is so contrary to human thinking and human nature, um, you see this strong push that if you disagree with us in any way, you will be ostracized, attacked, and this and that. And I talked to many psychiatrists, and I can't, cannot give names, who said, we kind of all know this. There's an emperor's new clothes to, uh, kind of feel to this. And we're afraid to speak up because if we do, we'll be thrown out of our institutions. We'll be attacked relentlessly. Our families will be attacked. And so we go along with this, but we all know that it's this kind of craziness. And while I, I completely agree with Janet, we as a church have not been loving enough and sensitive enough in embracing people. Um, I myself am trying to do a better job of that and, and am establishing relationships. And I know, Jim, you've always done that. You've reached across lines, so to speak, and built relationships with people and said, help me understand those things. What I found is I think that that's actually less common. There are Christians who still do that and are harsh. I think if anything, it's a kind of an overcorrection where more Christians are accidentally becoming gay affirming. 
Uh, I have relationships with people who are same-sex attracted and gender confused. I will take them out to lunch and dinner all day. I will love them, try to get them any kind of help, but I'm not going to marry them. I'm not going to affirm what I think is violating God's word. And my approach has been kind of similar to what Janet said. I want people falling in love with Jesus so much that anything that gets in the way becomes an impediment. And that's the thing that's worked for people. I know many, many people like Janet, formerly in gay lifestyles and choices and relationships. Some of them have even lost the attraction. Um, you, you have secular psychologists recognize a kind of a lead spokesperson. Again, I'm sure Janet knows her, Professor Lisa Diamond out of Utah, really caused a furor when she was speaking at a Cornell event. And she said, these things are not permanent. We all know that. Sexual orientation is absolutely reverse. Gender identity reverses. People change. It happens all the time. Some reason comes. It doesn't appeal to them any longer. And sometimes they're totally over it. Likewise, I know other believers who, who, and they're now married to a person of the opposite sex, and they'll say things like this. I may occasionally get that desire, but it no longer has power over me. I don't give into it. I have no desire to. I love, I love God so much. I don't want anything that separates me from that. And that's why I think we have to think in terms of that. And, and, and I really like what Janet said. It's not about identity. When I've done a lot of debates where somebody will ask me, can I, oh, can I be a, a, a gay Christian? And my answer is usually, well, I, I, don't, I can't accept your question. The premise of your question is wrong. And they'll say, well, I don't understand. What do you mean? So, well, if you're asking me, can I be a, a Christian and experience same-sex attraction? My answer is, of course. You might be a Christian and experience a desire to cheat on your wife, commit adultery, or do many types of activities. The real question is, what do you do with that? If you say, I am gay, it is my identity, well, then you're, you're disagreeing with the scripture says when it says, here's my I know identity. I'm a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. I'm, I'm, I'm made new. And anything that becomes an identity for us above our relationship with Christ then becomes a hindrance. And so that's my concern. We want to be pointing people to Jesus and let God do the work that we cannot. So while there still are Christians treating people harshly, I would just, and I'll wrap up with this thought, Jim, I know there's a lot of questions. I would say from my experience, the far more common thing is hostility against Christians if you do not completely endorse every aspect of the agenda. You could be in Hollywood, you could be in academia, you could be in any Fortune 500 company. If you come out and say, I'm marrying my same-sex partner or I'm changing my gender, you'll be, you'll be welcomed. Uh, if you came out in any of those institutions and said, I believe in traditional biblical morality, and I'm just don't approve of those things personally. You'd be ostracized, you'd be thrown out, just as Justice Alito warned in the same-sex marriage decision you referenced, Jim Obergefell, back in 2015. He said, right now it seems to be about tolerance, but eventually it will become, if you hold the wrong opinion, you'll have to keep it in silence, you'll be thrown out of places. And that, to my experience, unfortunately, is far more common, particularly now with gender identity. Because people look and they say, look, 
there's something fundamentally wrong that somebody I know biologically is a male and has greater lung capacity, bone density, muscle mass, has advantages. There are no women playing in the NFL or the NBA or Major League Baseball for a reason. These are simple biological facts. The fact that we're being told, look the other way, and if you don't agree with that, you're some kind of a bigot, is just frankly an attempt to get us to deny truth and silence us. So we have to do those things, but at the same time do it in as loving and winsome and gracious a way. And when people say, well, you disagree with this, I say, well, look, I'm saying what, Je what Jesus said. If you don't agree, you disagree with him. I'm here to love you, to help you, to do what I can. But the reality is that's the far more difficult thing. And I guess my meta concern, and I'm talking to more Gen Zers and millennials and all that, and I'm seeing some movement now, it, but they've in general been so indoctrinated in the idea Christians are hateful, they're cruising around beating up gays and lesbians, they're doing this, they're doing that, that their tendency is to get off on that exit ramp um, that Janet described. I find that's the greater tendency. And it's more difficult to convey biblical truth and explain the idea that the truest love of a person, you know, does not tell them, oh, you're a drug addict, that's your identity. I'll give you money for drugs and, and affirm you. Oh, you're a serial adulterer. Wonderful. That's who you are. I'm going to affirm. Well, in any other context, we wouldn't do that. With this particular issue, we've developed this hyper sensitivity because that narrative is always in the background. We're hateful people and, and it throws Christians off balance because we're quite the opposite. There's not a church that I know that would not welcome any gay, lesbian, transgender person in. That's been the case for a long, long time. But on the other hand, there are churches that say, if you want to be a member of this church, then you, there's a statement of faith you have to agree with. And the way the narrative is now getting manipulated is somebody will say to me, if you reject my choices, you reject me because that's who I am. That's my identity. You cannot reject my choices unless you hate me. And I'll tell people, I love you too much to get away with that. Think of all kinds of choices that you're making. Um, and this is the thing. I love you. I believe God's word. I believe it's, it's God-inspired and infallible, and I can only give you the best that I have. I want a relationship with you. But if you, put, if you label me that way, you've misstated my belief, you've found a convenient way out, and you've really not faced the ultimate question, which is, have you really given all that pain and hurt that you have over to God? Does God perhaps have a deeper, more profound healing for you that you've not imagined yet because you've not been able to trust in him. And I think that's kind of, for me, the staying on the main road that Janet was describing and uh, was blessed to hear your perspective. And that's a little bit of mine in response. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Joe. I really appreciate that. Uh, I'm gonna give one illustration and I'm gonna to go to uh, uh, Stephen Springer for you for some questions. I've got a lot of questions too. And then Dr. Jim Johnson. Then we got to get into a time of prayer. Uh, right after the, the Proposition 8 victory here in California that defended marriage, that was in 2008, I realized at that point that the decibel level, the arguing was just getting higher and higher. It was getting more intense. So I invited on a Sunday night seminar format to my church, 
the Episcopal Bishop from New Hampshire, Eugene Robinson. Bishop Robinson was the poster child for same-sex marriage, the first homosexual uh, married, by his definition, uh, Episcopal Bishop. I invited him to come along with John Corvino, head of the philosophy department at Wayne State University in Detroit, who had co-authored a book on debating same-sex marriage. They were on the side, obviously, <clears throat> of homosexuality. I also invited uh, Jennifer Oback Morris, uh, who's been a guest on World Prayer Network, and Robert Gagnon. Robert Gagnon was then a professor at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. He's now at Houston, Houston Baptist University. He has written the most compelling book, uh, probably five, six, seven, eight hundred pages, Homosexuality in the Bible. So I had those two representing the biblical standpoint. We opened it up, and uh, our, our auditorium it was a 2000 seat auditorium, was virtually capacity, and that's Sunday evening seminar format. As so we begin, and Robert Gagnon went first, I thought he would go to the Apostle Paul and make the case for the biblical understanding of marriage against homosexuality. He didn't. He went to the words of Jesus, and he unpacked them in an unbelievably brilliant style, typical to him. <clears throat> then I went to Bishop Robison, Bishop Eugene Robison, who I thought would go with the traditional revisionistic approach, taking the six classic passages on homosexuality and redoing them like they tend to do. He didn't do it at all because he knew he was facing scholarship profound and it could riddle him on those topics. Instead, what he said was, remember this is a man who was married to a woman, divorced her and, and so-called married a man. And he's, he's since, by the way, divorced, they divorced. But uh, he, he got up that night and he says, well, when it comes to the book, he didn't say the word Bible, but he was referring to the Bible. We all knew that. When it comes to the book, I admit that uh, the book doesn't have anything good to say about homosexuality. He may use the word gay there instead of homosexuality. I don't know. I don't recall. But he said, I know this. And when it came time for me to marry my partner, the Holy Spirit said to me, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. And that was the essence of his presentation. Sitting in the audience was a fairly high level, I, won't, I, I don't want to give clues, high level person, highly influential in the Episcopal congregation, the Episcopal movement, who sat there listening to a bishop of his movement. He came thinking he'd hear a defense of homosexuality. He was so shocked by what he heard, how shallow it was, that he showed up at our church the next weekend, never went back to that church, and became part of Skyline Church because he wanted to hear truth, biblical truth. And his wife, they both came. I said to you from the standpoint of the scriptures, the scriptures are crystal clear on this issue. Then knowing that, we have to build off that platform. And that's what Janet and Joe are helping us try to figure out the way to do, to reach out in loving, compassionate. And we pray winsome ways. So I'm going to open. Steve, uh, would you come on right now? But we're going to go into prayer in a moment. But I'd like Steve to ask a question or two. And then Dr. Johnson, uh, professor at Point Loma Nazarene University, will go to you for a question. Steve? Well, I just want to just say thanks to both Joe and Janet, too, just uh, just your insight and wisdom. And, and, and I couldn't agree more that just the power of the unconditional love of Jesus. And, you know, honestly, I, I'm thinking back even to before I was saved. And, you know, even as you're talking about some of this stuff, I was wrapped up in drugs and alcohol and all kinds of things like that. And Steve, I, tell, them, tell them what you were. What I, was I, you? <laughs> I, I was a fashion model for eight years. So I, I lived entrenched in just the nonsense 
and the madness of life that was in that industry. And so with it, it, it was it was accepted that even when you talk about like the peer groups and just the social pressures, um, it's no different than what I was experiencing, except our go-to was, was drugs. Let's get stoned, let's get drunk. And yet at the end of the day, it never addressed what was really going on in the heart. And, you know, I find it rather profound. You, you made a mention, uh, Janet, you know, just that even with the Gen Z, 21%. I mean, to me, I'm just like, whoa, you know, and, you know, we, we've had opportunity over the years to, to minister and to, to bring people on that journey out of the same sex attraction. And, you know, I, what, what we found, and I'm sure this is probably some of your conclusions as well, is that I would say 90% of those that we ministered to and walked in that journey is that uh, there was some type of sexual molestation at a young age. And some remembered in detail, some just vaguely remember. And again, I don't know if that's even what we're seeing now with the increase, but I know like you were saying, how did you put it? It was the, uh, the, the social contagion. And I think that that's part of it too, mm -hmm. is that even when we look at just the, the, the effects of social media and what's in a hand of a child, you know, 90 hours of the day. I mean, it's, it's, it's there. And uh, I'm just curious, uh, what has been your experience? And I would say with you, Janet, just because that's, it's kind of your profession and just what you've observed both on the, on the academia level, but even as well as on the counseling side of things, uh, just with, you know, just with, uh, you know, what, what, what would you say would be some of the increases in, in just what, what we're seeing there with, uh, yeah, just, I guess with, uh, I'm just thinking yeah. particularly what we dealt with was, is just the, uh, just the sexual molestation that happened even at young age. So this is one of those places where uh, I I'm going to struggle a little bit to answer that. In psychology, if I say that, yes, there is more trauma um, or, or sexual abuse among these folks than other people, I will get in trouble. Okay. The, the research that we have will say that that's not true. The research that we have though is not completely unbiased. And I, I teach research methods. We can talk about the bias in research. I could talk about it all day. And so I will tell you though, that most of the people I work with have had some kind of trauma, but that's not only people who are same sex attracted or who have gender identity issues. It's everybody I work with. So, um, so I'm just going to be hesitant to, to speak to that. But as you were talking, I did think about this, this other piece of this that I don't hear talked about very much is that we live in a hyper-sexualized society and God designed us to be sexual beings. It's part of our created nature. In fact, I would tell you that our sexuality probably represents our biopsychosocial selves more than any other thing about us. And so when we are put in situations that have sexual connotations to them, our bodies respond. They just do, they were created to do that. It's good and it's beautiful. But when we have people come along and tell us, well, therefore that means this is true about you. I think that's where we begin to get in trouble. And, um, you know, we are made for intimate relationship. And one of the things I'm seeing among my college students is they don't know how to understand an intimate friendship differently than an intimate sexual relationship. 
We have so hypersexualized everything that if they feel any affection for anyone, it must be sexual. And then if they pursue that, their bodies will respond. And then they think, well, see, then that must be true. And that that's one of many reasons I think we need to be talking about sexuality, friendship, and all of those things very early um, among our kids so that they're ready for those kind of things. Dr. Jim Johnson, Point Loma Nazarene University professor, a man who is uh, deeply in love with the Lord. I, every time I'm around him, I see his passion, his passion for Christ. It always convicts me and touches me. Dr. Johnson. Dr. Johnson, do you have a question or did we lose you? He was on a little bit ago. Okay, I'm going to say I just... I muted. I missed them. I unmuted my mic. Sorry. Okay, go right ahead. Uh, thank you again for your presentation. I join with Steve and others in saying fantastic information. My question is a simple one. We look at things from a psychological, from a legal, from an academic world in terms of this issue of, of same sex and marriage. In the church, in discussion with believers, maybe even a pastor, what scriptures do you fall back on in the discussion within a church setting that help us be strong? Are there particular scriptures that you fall upon that really are helpful to you in your discussions, either one of you? And so I want to be really careful about just pulling out particular biblical passages. I think that's what's been done in the past, and then people can argue against them. I actually believe we could remove all of the clobber passages. And if we understand the whole narrative of scripture, we end up in the same place, right? And so, yes, the, the passages matter, but I want, I want people to see the narrative, right? Because also I want them to take their own narrative and put and see that inside of God's narrative. Um, I, I'm just going to be hesitant about individual passages, and maybe that's not what you're asking. I do think that specific passages really matter for us. Um, I go to Romans 1, and when you read what Paul has written about just the, the way, I, I want to say, kind of the tsunami effect of sin, it explains so much of where we are right now. In, in terms of the way that we see gender and sexuality. And, um, and it, it makes me ask questions then about what do we do um, in that. But I, I think Paul is spot on. And in the folks I've talked to, his passage in Romans 1 is the most difficult one for gay affirming folks to make sense of. They can, you know, they can revise all the other ones and be gay affirming, but the Romans one passage is the most difficult for them. Yeah, and I would maybe add to that, you know, we are new creations in Christ and all that. A few yes. verses come to mind, uh, Matthew 19, 4 and 5, where Jesus affirms the creational model, mm -hmm. uh, marriage as a man and a woman. I can think of other verses, but I, I think I'll point to this one, Matthew chapter 11, uh, I love the verses where Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take up my yoke, learn from me. I'm humble and lowly of heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. Yeah. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. At one time, I was invited to a dialogue <laughs> at a gay and transgender church in uh, downtown Phoenix. 
and uh, felt a little like I was going into the lion's den in terms of everybody was looking to dislike me in any position that I took. And uh, I talked about the pain of life. I talked about mm -hmm. some of what Steve was mentioning. You know, I was a product of the 60s and 70s and and, you know, Woodstock told us sex, drugs, and rock and roll were the way to set us free. Free from what? I'm not sure, but <laughs> it was enjoyable at the time. So we just all went along with it. And uh, I realized now how much pain there was in dysfunction that I just was not facing. And when I mentioned, you know, coming to faith, to, when I came to faith to Christ, in Christ for real in 1978, um, I was really broken by the pain and the sense that life was meaningless and empty. And I didn't even care if I lived. It wasn't suicidal. I didn't care if I lived. And, you know, when, when I got wonderfully saved and transformed, I felt the presence of God flowing in. It was like a supernatural encounter. It, it was like the last tumbler on the lock fell into place and the door opened, you know, and, um, so when we have these pains, it seems to me, you know, Jesus said, there's one of two options. You can fall on the rock. If we fall on the rock, we're broken, but we can be healed. If the rock falls on us, we don't do so well. But I just appealed to them and said, maybe we've made decisions in our life to deal with the pain and the discomfort. And as I looked around the room, I'm telling you virtually every face was, I saw heads nodding like this. And, and I said, maybe God just has something deeper and more profound for us, a healing in a, in, in a deeper sense that gives us back our humanity, our, 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 what we were made to be in creation, our place as children of God. And to my great surprise, and because the beginning of the night, I had nothing like this, you know, the end of the night, people coming up and thanking me and saying, you know, we agree with so much of what you said and all this. So I think verses that acknowledge that we're broken, um, but there's a, you know, there's, a, we can redeem that broken state. You know, um, uh, those kinds of verses to me have been helpful because it acknowledges the pain that many of these people feel and they've tried to stuff away. And then you try to invite them into a relationship with Christ. And I tell them, I can't, tell you anything that's going to do anything but if you if you give it over to jesus he, he can do things i'm not he can do mm -hmm. exceedingly abundantly above all i can ask or even imagine and i've seen it right. so many times so i think maybe some of those kinds of verses well joe you bring that up the the one of the things that i do use with my students um is uh, ephesians 1 and, you know, verses three through 14 is just a beautiful description of who we are in Christ. And mm -hmm. so I'll do something like have them go through and underline every time it says in Christ and then circle what is, what are we in Christ? And, um, and then I have them highlight the adjectives for those things, right? And then I have them write them out with their name inserted. Mm -hmm. And then the prayer that follows that um, in 15 and following it's just a beautiful prayer, but it ends with, you know, that, that we would know his inc incomparably great mm. power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And I think understanding that we have that power in us, if, if we are in Christ and what kind of transformation can that bring in our lives? Right. And I think sometimes we settle for these mediocre 
like, well, you know, I'm just broken and that's all I'm going to be. But we have the power that raised Christ from the dead in us. We can be, we can have so much more. Right? <laughs> we have these full, abundant lives. We don't have to settle. Um, and so that's, that's where I try to move my students when I'm working with them. That's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I find, it, I find it interesting too, that, you know, you mentioned earlier, just the labels that are put on people. And uh, even in that Ephesians scripture, I mean, the fact that we were predestined to adoption to be children of God and that, I mean, that is the reality, but you know, you look at there, a label for everything. And uh, you know, when you speak something over something, I'll tell you, our words have power and uh, even what people speak over themselves. Absolutely. We even encourage people to really come into an understanding of that is that just look at yourself in the mirror and just begin to speak the truth. Because you know, the reality is that God doesn't make mistakes. And I think that that's part of it is that society says that there's something on, there's something dysfunctional, there's something that's broken. And then, you know, a lot of times there isn't really an answer for it other than let's just medicate you. Right. Tozer says that the most important thoughts we have are our thoughts about God, but C.S. Lewis says the most important thoughts that we have are the way that we think God sees us, right? Well, I'm going to, unfortunately, have to bring this to closure to kind of move us towards prayer. Just if I can give some sort of pastoral thoughts on the way out the door here on this one. The first one, I want to underscore something that Janet said. I want to come back to it because it crops up so much today. And this phrase, gay Christian, uh, and then Joe, Joe talked about it too. Um, I always I say to people, what do you mean by that? That phrase, what does that phrase actually mean? Are you saying it's a person who's practicing homosexuality and calling themselves a believer at the same time? Okay, well, that one we're going to have to put aside because you, you can't affirm a sin and then call yourself follower of Jesus at the same time. Now, if you're struggling with it and trying to stop that that's not quite another matter you're working out how to see the power of the holy spirit released fully in you or if you're celibate you're not practicing homosexuality then you call yourself gay christian because your orientation remains in your mind at least of that then why would you want to tag that on why would anybody go well i'm a gluttonous christian i'm a i'm a gossiping christian i'm a murderous christian who wants all these labels on them as joe alluded to that one our identity Man, I want my identity to be as wrapped in Christ as possible. So the last thing I want for any of us is to have any kind of an adjective to the word Christian that diminishes the reality of the cross and the giving of the Holy Spirit. That's number one. So don't, don't, I say this kindly, don't allow people to get by with this gay Christian language. Lovingly challenge it, challenge it by all means. A second thing I appreciate Janet mentioning is how people change if one of their child suddenly comes out and says, I'm same-sex attracted. The parents, even they, if they might've been grounded, things will oftentimes just flip and suddenly become affirming of the practice. I have a phrase, I call it politics by child. The mayor in, in San Diego, a number quite a number of years ago, his son came out as homosexual. So suddenly the mayor had to affirm that as well, same-sex marriage. Uh, Senator Rob Portman from Ohio, his son came out. So he suddenly switched his definition of marriage. I confronted him face to face on, on this, on this issue. What's politics by child? My thinking is, thank goodness your child wasn't a pedophile. Would your politics follow that as well? That's not a good, not a good system. Have your theology by child or your politics by child based upon what your child is acting out on. We have to be riveted to the, to the word of God, no matter what's going on. 
The third one is a pastoral instinct. Uh, it could be that some of you are going to disagree with this when you have the right to. Uh, but it, it boils down to this. The question I get asked from time to time, should I go to my friend's wedding, homosexual wedding? And my answer is no. You can affirm the person. Do whatever you can be with that person. Take them out to dinner. Be with that person. Love that individual. But do not participate in an event that celebrates that for which God destroyed Sodom. And for those who try to do the revisionistic works that Sodom wasn't destroyed for that, but because of inhospitality, go to Jude. And the book of Jude sets that very straight, exactly why Sodom was destroyed. So why would you support in any way affirming? I've seen Christians put on their Facebook, celebrating somebody's so-called wedding, marriage in quotes. No, a believer can't do that. You don't celebrate something for which God destroyed an entire city or a couple cities at that point. So no, stand your ground, be loving and tender. Uh, I recognize I'll make some people upset with you, but we do not need to compromise on this particular issue. A fourth thing, I did, I did not realize that, I didn't even think about the fact that I'd be putting, I put on a video of a newsletter went out today and I, I didn't even make the connection between tonight's World Prayer Network and the video, I put out today, it's a 15 minute video, where I lay out, go to the Hebrew scriptures on the nature of marriage from Genesis one and two. If you're not on our mailing list, if you'll contact info at well-versed world, info at well-versed world, and ask for the Hebrew teaching, Hebrew scriptures, uh, the Hebrew language from Genesis 1 and 2, the teaching on the definition of marriage. And we'll be glad to get that. Now, if you're not getting our newsletter, uh, then let us know and, and we'll get that to you. But we sent it out today. So all of you get the newsletter. Take, I, I know last thing you have is more time, but take 15 minutes, if you would, and walk through with me as I do the teaching unpack the Hebrew words, and you'll see the, the sanctity, the sacredness, the holiness, how God views his marriage. It's, 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 it's quite frankly, it's mind-boggling. And there's some components of it from, from the ancient language. I, I can't even share in a mixed company. It, it's a profundity. It, it, it's so sacred. It is so special. Uh, take time, if you would, to watch that. A fifth thing I want to say, form relationships just like Janet and Joe are doing with as many people who are struggling as you can and, and, and be, the, be the arms of Christ. Let me give you, I was on the Dr. Phil show twice. I alluded this once before on World Prayer Network. Dr. Phil show twice after the, after the battle to defend marriage in California. And it was three of us against three. Uh, Gavin Newsom was on their side. Gloria Allred, the well-known attorney. And, and so three versus three, it was an incredible vitriolic uh, half the audience would scream it at us. And it was, it was a pretty tough show. You can go online and Google, put my name and Dr. Phil and Gavin Newsom's and, and you'll, you can pull it up. The two shows are very easy to find. Uh, I put those out in a newsletter a week or two ago and didn't even think about it's die, die, die with this. But one of the guys, I was giving a, a, a comment about a Massachusetts case. And Joe and Franco would know this case well because he was part of ADF. And the ADF attorneys had looked into this case very much, and they had given me a lot of information on the case, the briefing of the case, of what was legally the issues in that Massachusetts case. So I brought that up, and I was walking through that. And a man named Joe Salmonese, which was with Gavin Newsom and Gloria Allred, and they're saying, on the Dr. Phil show, started yelling, liar. See what they are? There's liar. They lie. They never tell the truth. And, and I was quite taken back by it because I had researched it carefully. So I went to him after the lights were off, the cameras were off. And it was just the two of us. I said, Joe, 
Uh, what did I say? He said I was a liar. What did I say about that case that was incorrect? He looked at me and says, I don't even know anything about the case. I never looked into it. I had a choice in that moment to say, I can't believe you in front of millions of people. You called me a liar when you were completely ignorant. That was one option. I didn't go that option. My flesh wanted to. I went a second option. And I said, you know, Joe, if we're in this situation, I'll bet we could be good friends. Give me your cell phone number. I'm going to give you mine. Well, the next time I'm in Washington, D.C., he was head of the human rights campaign. That was the whole move of homosexuality was through the money through that. I said, I'm going to come visit you. So I did. I went out there, sat with him for 90 minutes. I said, Joe, this was about several months later. Joe, tell me your story. So he told me a story. I kept asking questions about his life. After about 90 minutes, I said, man, I got to go. I so apologize. I'm going to have to go. My apologies. I said, I got one question. Pardon me. Do you see me as a liar? He said, well, no. Oh, okay. I just, I just, just wanted to check. I didn't even take him back to what he called me on the show. Didn't bother to. But we formed a friendship. We formed a relationship. Some of the people who are hired to write against me on Right Wing Watch, I formed a relationship, a guy who was paid to write against me on Right Wing Watch and about 100 of us. And I formed a relationship with him and we've become good friends. We've exchanged about 200 emails, maybe more over the years. So I encourage you to reach out a long ways away from your comfort zone and form a relationship. And it will be good for you, but it'll be wonderful for them because you're carrying the infectious spirit of the Holy Spirit within you. And even if you don't even get into a verbalized discussion, uh, even the issue, the spirit of Jesus leaving in, in you will, will, will have an impact. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please read the show notes for additional details if you would like a copy of the book or resources mentioned. Remember that WellVersed is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We rely on your support and partnership. Thank you for listening to the WellVersed podcast. For more information, please go to www.wellversedworld.org.